Hey, my name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm the author of Cold Case Christianity. I, I gotta tell you, if you're listening to this radio, you know that you're in a good place, and I cannot endorse more highly the intellect and the passion of your host. So just enjoy this radio program. Is he a real one? Radio is the real thing. And Veda, thank you so much for doing the most important work of the kingdom. Hello out there, this is Bobby Conway. You're listening to Is He a Real One Radio? And I'm now passing the baton off to my man, Veda. Hello, everybody. It is your host, Veda Hedgeman of Is He a Real One Radio? And if you are listening on YouTube and watching, hello, I want to wave at you. If you are listening on Spotify, hello and shouts out to you. If you are listening on iTunes or any of our other apps, we want to greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, we cannot forget iHeartRadio. If you are tuning in via iHeartRadio, we want to thank you for tuning in. And we have a very special guest uh, with a brother by the name of Dr. Sean McDowell. Now, Sean, I actually never told you this before, uh, but you actually have impacted, before we get into it, I know we don't have a lot of time, but we want to cover as much information as possible. But I do want to tell you on air that you actually influenced me more than you think, because when I interviewed you a few years ago, when you did the a book with your dad, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict Update. Yeah. Now, although I didn't publish that interview at that time as a Veda Hedgeman interview, you know, I, I still did it, right? And and we were able to, you know, the Lord blessed it. It was able to be put on a hip-hop site, you know, a Christian article on a hip-hop site, which was really cool. But that really let me know that I can do this, you know, because I asked the questions as it pertains to the book, you know, that I wanted answered that I thought would be able to help people, you know, and that really encouraged me like, hey, I can do this, you know, and of course, Jim Wallace, he really encouraged me to go ahead and put my face on stuff. But you were the first interview that I did back then. And at the time, I just thought I was trying to help you guys' book out, put it on a platform that most people wouldn't expect it. But that really, the Lord really used that to encourage me to start doing a lot of things that you're seeing today. So I just wanted to thank you publicly for that, my brother. Well, thanks for saying that. That's really encouraging. I don't remember even thinking it was your first interview. So you struck me as a pro from the beginning. So Amen. that's good. Good to hear. Amen. To God be the glory. And, you know, with that said, uh, Sean, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit before we get to our topic? Yeah, I don't mind at all. I am a professor at Biola University, specifically Talbot School of Theology. So I teach graduate classes in theology, apologetics, worldview, have one undergrad class and actually also teach high school part-time at a local Christian school where my kids go to school and my wife teaches. Uh, outside of teaching, I get to write uh, books that I love. I get to speak. And then mainly I'm just a husband and a dad uh, trying to do that and, and balance all those things well. All right. So thank you for the introduction, Sean. So the topic that we are discussing on today is the fate of the apostles. You know, the fate of the apostles, you know, oftentimes, you know, we hear and or we might read, we might hear someone make a comment that many early Christian followers, namely the apostles, they died brutal deaths. They bride deaths of martyrdom for what they believed and whatnot. And Sean McDowell has an excellent book that examines the historical evidence that we have that covers this. Now, this is a, a scholarly work, so it's a little bit more than uh, 15 and $20, but it's worth it. And I also say, although it's a great apologetic resource, if you want to just do some study on the apostles in general, whether it's using scripture and using external evidence and just things that refer to them, 
this is a great resource. Again, you know, it's a little pricey, but it really is worth it. So if you're doing a study, I just want to know more about James. I just want to know more about Peter in general, even if you're not necessarily interested into the fate of it. Sean did a really good job of breaking things down because although the overall goal is to discuss the martyrdom of these gentlemen, he under he wisely laid the foundation with scripture and what the Bible says about the apostles. So this is what we're going to be discussing on today, the fate of the apostles. Now, Sean, as we get started, I want to start off with uh, just kind of laying some groundwork as far as the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical event. And why is that important in the context of this conversation? Well, it's important for a few reasons. One, it's the heart of the Christian faith. The earliest testimony that we have of the apostles in the writings of Paul, in the early Christian creeds, in the Gospels, is that to believe in Jesus was to believe that Jesus had risen from the grave. There is no early Christian story apart from the resurrection. Now, with that, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Jesus is not risen, our faith is in vain. In other words, if they found the body of Jesus, Christianity is done. It's over. It's finished. So it's quite remarkable that Christianity is based upon a single, testable, historical event that the apostles and other early Christian writers invited people to investigate and consider the evidence for. So the truth of Christianity is tied to the resurrection itself. But it's more than that. It also is tied to, like— If Jesus rose from the grave, Paul writes in his book to Thessalonians, we now grieve with hope. It means this is a world in which there's hope. This life is not all that there is. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Jesus is not risen, we're still in our sins. We are not forgiven. So the resurrection not only shows that Christianity is true, but it also follows that there's hope, that this world is good. God has not abandoned us. And Paul says there's a power that we can have now because of the resurrection of Jesus, even in our daily lives right now. So quite literally, everything is tied to the resurrection. The way my dad used to put it, it's either the most important event in history, or it's a vicious, wicked hoax that somebody fostered upon mankind. There is no middle ground. Yeah, so thank you for that. Now, as it pertains to the martyrdoms or the deaths, we'll get into some of the evidence and the time that we have, but as it pertains to these men who walked with Jesus or in Paul's sake, you still had a, a, in Paul's case, you still had an experience with Jesus. How does their belief in the resurrection have any potential evidential support to the resurrection actually happen happening? So when we talk about the apostles being willing to die for their belief that Jesus had risen from the grave, This doesn't prove that Christianity is true. Sometimes I've heard, and I know you've heard as well, Veda, that people say, all the apostles, except maybe John, were willing to suffer and die. Uh, They wouldn't make it up, refused to recant. Therefore, Christianity is true. Well, that skips about eight or ten important steps. (laughs) Right, right. A conclusion that just doesn't follow. The willingness of the apostles to suffer and die, give up their life for Jesus— doesn't show Christianity's true. It shows that they sincerely believed that Jesus had appeared to them. They weren't making up a story to intentionally put themselves in harm's way. 
they really believe this was the case. So this rules out, for example, that this is a big conspiracy. The disciples get together, steal the body, make up this story. Well, no. Why would they all make up the story that they'd seen the risen Jesus? And by the way, if you have the disciples making this up, you still can't explain the appearance to Paul and the appearance to James. So the willingness to die shows the depths of their sincerity. Now, could it be that they hallucinated, thought they saw the risen Jesus, and were dying for hallucination instead of Jesus really appearing to them? Well, that's a logical possibility that mm -hmm. their willingness to die doesn't rule out. Now, I think we can rule out hallucinations on other grounds we could talk about. But I'm trying to say that the willingness of the apostles to suffer and die is one important piece of a larger historical argument for the resurrection. And it's important we don't overstate it, but I think it's also important right. that we don't simply dismiss it. Now, as far as the, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that it's important that we don't overstate it, but also don't dismiss it because I'm also wondering what would you say is the difference between say their deaths if they did in fact die gruesome, murderous, torturous, versus if someone who sincerely believes that Jesus rose from the dead today. Why, why is that different? I know you kind of touched on that already, but, sure. but, why, yeah. is, but why is that different? No, this is a great question. So I'll just personalize it and give it a morbid example. If we're doing this interview and someone comes in, puts a gun on my head and says, Sean, do you really believe Jesus rose from the grave? I say yes, and they kill me. You would probably walk away and go, why, that's tragic. But second, guy, that guy really believed it. He had deep right. conviction and believed it. Right. But there is nothing about the truth or falsity of Christianity that rests in any way upon my personal conviction because I am relying upon, uh, say, books that have been passed down, uh, other people who said they were eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus, but I was not an eyewitness. Yeah. So mine shows my conviction and my passion and my commitment to Christ. But nothing about the truth of Christianity falls from it any more than people would say, what about, say, the Muslim martyrs? And I even hesitate to use the word martyrs right. for the 9-11 terrorists. Well, that showed they believed it. But what they believed was third, fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth hand from the events that actually happened themselves. Now, take the apostles. They were the ones that traveled with Jesus right. about two years. They heard him teach. They saw him perform miracles. They spent day and night with him. They're the ones who abandoned him when he was arrested, as we see in Matthew 26, because at that point they thought, oh, he's a failed Messiah. And then they're the ones that very quickly say, oh my goodness, this Jesus is risen. We saw, we touched, we heard. These are not myths being passed on to us. We saw the risen Jesus with our own eyes, and we are willing to proclaim this as we learn the book of Acts when we're threatened, when we're beaten, when we're thrown in prison, and even when many <clears throat> die. So a modern-day person is removed from the events. The apostles were there personally, so their testimony has a very different epistemic or historical significance and merit than your testimony or my testimony would. Right. And to put that in other words, for those who are listening, and, and Sean also said this a few minutes ago, 
Now, granted, you're listening to this. Jesus is the son of God. He is God manifested in the flesh. He did die, death, crucifixion. He did rise from the dead. That did happen. Now, if somehow, just bear with me, presuppositional uh, people who tune into my show, just bear with me. If somehow that didn't happen, Sean and I are so far removed that, you know, okay, we can have those convictions, but Peter, James, these people who walked with Jesus, they would know that they are dying for a lie. And that is just logically unreasonable to expect someone to do. Now, before, now, would you say that's a fair uh, summary of how I just said that? Yeah, the way it's typically phrased is people will die for something they believe is true, but nobody will die for something they know is false. Mm. So the Buddhists who lit themselves on fire to protest the Vietnam War, Muslim terrorists who died, you name it. They believed it was true, but they were not in a position with their own eyes and experience to be able to falsify the convictions that they had. Well, the apostles were. They were there. They saw. They heard. They touched for 40 days with Jesus. Now, it's logically possible that this was hallucinations. I think we can dismiss that again on other grounds. Mm -hmm. But they were in a much better epistemic position to know if this was myths or legends or false in a way that we today are not in that same similar position. Now, people like Stephen and James, the son of Zebedee, you know, they all died, excuse me, gruesome deaths according to scripture. Now, when I was a non-believer, a skeptic, still, you know, the Holy Spirit was still working on my heart, bringing me to the faith. I viewed that as just simple reports like this is at bare minimum this is something that was written a really 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 long time ago so if even if you want to look at scripture uh and the reason i phrase it this way sean is because uh our stats do show that we have non-believers who tune into our show thank god so so if someone is listening to this and you say i don't think the bible is the inerrant word of god it is still it is still report. It is still something that was written a really, really long time ago. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because we have people like Stephen, James, Jesus himself, who died gruesome deaths. The reason I point this out as a question to you, Sean, is does this at least show some consistency in things that followers of Christ could potentially expect or have to endure? The fact that we at least have, before we even get to external stuff, that we at least have that in, in the Bible. Yeah, I'd love that you ask this question because we have to ask if these accounts aren't true and the apostles aren't reporting what they thought happened, then in some fashion, they're inventing this story and they're making it up for some unknown motivation or we could stipulate motivation. But that raises the question, if these men were going to invent this story, why invent it in the way that it was invented? So for example, I'm I'm preaching very soon on Matthew 26, 30 through 46. And this is where Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And he and all the apostles say, no, never will die for you. Well, that night he actually betrays him three times. Right. And then the next passage in 36 through 46 is the disciples fall asleep in Gethsemane. Mm. When Jesus was in such despair that he fell down on his own face. My God. Now, why would the gospel writers invent that they betray Jesus? Why would they invent that they fall asleep in Gethsemane? And why would they invent that Jesus, who's the founder of their faith, is seemingly looking 
far less than heroic by pleading with God to take this cup from him mm. and falling on his face. He's in such despair. The entire story is the opposite of what we would expect given that culture and that time, what it meant to be a hero, to have an honorable death, that they give their Messiah the most shameful, excruciating death imaginable. Mm. It doesn't make sense that they would make this up. So when the apostles proclaim the story they believe is true, basically what they're saying in the Roman Empire is we don't think Caesar is God. We think this person that you publicly shamed and crucified as right. a criminal right. is the risen Lord, and we will follow him. In a sense, they are choosing to put themselves in a position against the powers of the Roman Empire, who had no problem squelching this movement at its core, crucifying them, stopping them. So whether or not they ever died as martyrs, we can get to that evidence. This shows a profound confidence that is so counterintuitive from the kind of story you would make up that shows, guy, these guys really believed it, and yeah. they are putting themselves in harm's way. So John the Baptist is beheaded. Stephen is killed. James is killed. They're following Jesus who is killed. This was a martyrdom movement from the beginning. Why would the apostles proclaim this? And why would so many people sign on? If wow. There wasn't very good reason to believe that Jesus had appeared to the apostles and beyond. Yeah, and I mentioned Jim Wallace uh, earlier in the introduction, you know, but he, in a few of his presentations, he points out, you know, in in some of his forensic cases, you know, that people do things, uh, they do manipulative things, or they commit crimes, and it usually has something to do with greed power or some sort of lust or relationship you know one of yep. those three one of those three things and that makes sense to me you know when i think of any crime in history or i think of any tv show or movie i've ever watched or anything i've ever personally experienced that makes a lot of sense those three categories greed power or lust and when we think of anything we have at, <clears throat> excuse me when we think of anything that we have access to historically we don't see the, we don't see the apostles having having these things you know it you know and and also uh, i would like to point out you pointed out that you know jesus claiming to be the son of god which he's clearly saying caesar is not right so he died a death of crucifixion a humiliating and the purpose of that part of the purpose of that is to embarrass and make a gruesome example out of the person being crucified so why would they follow a person who just died this death like wh wh why would they do that <laughs> why would they set themselves up for that and you mentioned something in your book that i would like to read sean uh and it says that christians were actually persecuted for not worshiping roman gods christians were christians were accused of atheism they rejected the legitimacy of the empire which was sanctioned by the gods and to deny their proper honor is unpatriotic so i'm not sure if you guys are following the point that we're making here so basically they are just like Jesus was rebellious. We read scripture and we say, oh, wow, Jesus was a rebellious somebody, right? He was doing it for what was right. He was being rebellious. Those who were saying, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord are being rebellious as well. And when you do that to people in power, you can see why some sort of arresting or beating or even 
uh, murder would happen. You have anything to add to that before we move on to the actual apostles? Yeah. So, so two things. Jay Warren Wallace's point, he's a cold case detective, is every case he's ever worked on, people commit a crime for sex and or lust, power and money. Let's look at the apostles. It wasn't about sex. Jesus was single. He showed nothing but dignity and honor for women long before the Me Too movement. Unlike most, if not many, other religious figures we could talk about. Second, it wasn't about power. Jesus laid down his life. He said, if you want to be first, be last. He said, look, pick up your cross and follow me. And right. it wasn't about money. Jesus' message at the heart of it was about giving to the poor. So the motivation is lacking there, uh, which says, okay, they're proclaiming this because they really believed that it was, it was genuinely true. Now, I made a second point, um, and I just lost my train of thought. What was the second point you made? I was going to comment on something. Uh, was it about Christians uh, being persecuted for not oh, worshiping yeah. Roman yes. gods? It was. So why were Christians persecuted early on? The Roman Empire was pluralistic. There were many gods that people worshipped, and they didn't have a problem of Christians worshipping Jesus as God. The problem was they worshipped Jesus as God, but didn't worship the other local deities as God. That's a good point. Now, in that culture, if they had a famine or it didn't rain or there was some pestilence that spread— they viewed the people have not prayed enough to the gods to get this to go away. So people would pray to local gods and Christians say, no, I'm not praying to your gods. So in their worldview, Christians were bringing harm onto the city and the culture. They were being unpatriotic by the refusal to worship these gods. So given the Roman worldview at that time, which I think is false and probably everybody else today would think is false, it made sense that they looked at Christians as enemies of the state and thus persecuted them because that was their way of protecting society and culture as a whole. Mm. That's awesome. That's awesome. So with that said, I would like to spend the last uh, 20 to 25 minutes that we have left together trying to go through some, some of the actual apostles. So, Let's say let's start off with Peter. Uh, you can please feel free to correct me if I say anything wrong during this conversation. But Peter seems to be an apostle who has some of the more stronger evidence. It's a lot of external sources as well as in scripture. You know, so I know the tradition says that he was crucified upside down. Uh, what are some of the first thoughts that come to you when we talk about Peter? So what's interesting is when you look at the apostles mentioned in scripture, Peter is mentioned the most. And then James and John, Andrew and Thomas, you get into these middle tier and later tier ones. We have very few references to them in scripture, but we also have very few references to them outside of scripture. So Peter is mentioned the most in scripture, and we have the most evidence for him historically speaking as well. So when it comes to Peter, we have two first century sources. One is John chapter 21. You look at verses 18 and 19. Uh -huh. And Jesus Jesus says to Peter, uh, someone's going to take you where you do not want to go. They're going to, you know, gird you in a sense. And then it says in parentheses, at least in English, he was indicating to him the way he was going to die. And if you read in that context of John 21, Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life. And he says to Peter, 
Now you are the good shepherd, in a sense, the rock. And like me, you will lay down your life. Now that was probably written in the 90s. Peter probably died in the 60s. So even people who say, I don't think John is inspired, fine, as a historical writing. This was written in a time where people clearly would have known that tradition. And if you wrote something that wasn't true, would have undermined the entire purpose of the Gospel of John. So that's a first century source. Second first century source is in a document called First Clement. And it was also probably written in the 90s. And it was a letter written from Rome, which if Peter died in Rome, the tradition should be live there. And it's written to a church. And amidst that, it talks about in cryptic, not cryptic language, but I won't unpack all the context and details. But even scholars like Bart Ehrman, who's decidedly not a Christian, says Clement was aware of a tradition of the martyrdom of Peter, again in the 90s. Now you get into the second century, 100 to 200, there are eight other sources, some stronger than mm -hmm. others, that unanimously refer to Peter dying a martyr's death, and some of them indicate in Rome. So the bottom line, Veda, is the tradition for Peter is early, it's consistent, it's unanimous that he died as a martyr. There's no other tradition whatsoever I could even find. Now, as far as him being crucified upside down, I actually think he probably wasn't crucified. And here's why. One thing we know about crucifixion is the person was stripped completely naked. <laughs> I was going to get there. Go ahead. <laughs> to humiliate the person. But in John 21, it describes him being clothed by somebody else right. and taken to the point of his death. Now, John 21 and Clement don't exactly describe precisely how he died, but they both agreed he died as a martyr. That's really all that matters for my right. sake. But crucifixion upside down appears at the end of the second century, probably 180, 190, in this document called the Acts of Peter. And then later church historians, third, fourth, fifth century, pick up on this as if it's historical but if you actually read that document what's really interesting about it is yes peter's crucified upside down but it seems that it's making more of a theological point that the world is upside down and when peter's flipped upside down he sees the world as it is and his death like the death of jesus will help turn it right side up so given that that document is is kind of filled with other clearly legendary material and there's a theological purpose to it. Even though there was some upside-down crucifixion, I'm skeptical that that's really what happened to Peter. But his manner of death aside, we have early, consistent, unanimous testimony that Peter was first apostle, proclaimed the risen Jesus, put himself in harm's way, and died as a martyr for his conviction tied to who Jesus was. Now, Sean, you mentioned that it's a number of external biblical sources that mentions Peter's death as well. But one of the things that I love about the Bible is that although we are including ex external historical things that are that aren't found in the 66 books in the in the Holy Bible as evidence as well, you know, we can use scripture, you know, as that as well. And it's funny because you mentioned John 21, where Jesus mentions Peter's death. Some would say, some would say that uh, second Peter uh, chapter one uh, verses 12 through 15 was Peter even uh, looking forward to his death or and or alluding to what Jesus said how would you respond to that 
Well, here's the interesting thing about this reference. You and I would believe that Second Peter was written, in fact, by Peter. Right. Uh, there's a probably a, a larger scholarly consensus who are not conservative Christians who would doubt that Peter even wrote Second Peter. And either way, it makes my point. Because if Peter wrote it, he knows his death is pending, and he writes it because he sees it coming down the line, and very soon his life is going to be taken from him. If Peter didn't write it, and it was somebody else, this person was so aware of the death of Peter, it was <clears> such <throat> public knowledge, that when he writes this on behalf of Peter, inserts that Peter knows his death is coming. So whether Peter wrote it or not is irrelevant to the, for the point that I'm making, yeah. for the strength of the tradition towards the end of the first century that Peter, in fact, died as a martyr. Now, that's really that's a really powerful point. That's a really powerful point, because like you said, you and I would say, yes, Peter wrote that. But even if someone wants to make a case and we temporarily concede that when we look at the earliest writings that we have historically and traditionally, we still have the same information being put forth as it pertains to his death. And that's some really powerful stuff historically. Yeah, I think that's right now. We just have to set aside questions of the inspiration, right. the authors of the Bible. Like, those are important questions. All I'm asking is, historically speaking, do we have reason to believe Peter died as a martyr? And we can set the authorship of Peter aside, and either way, it makes the point that we have a source and a writing very aware of an early tradition that Peter, in fact, died this way. Now, someone who has studied this, who may, who might not agree with you and I on this topic, you know, one of the things they may say is, okay, Sean, you, you mentioned a lot of external historically, uh, you know, re historical reports, I'm sorry, you know, about Peter's death, sure, but many of these things are known allegory, like it's known fake stuff in this story. So how can we how can we trust or how can we give any credence to the part where it says about Peter's death if we can read the entire document and say they made up 20 other things, you know? So how is the Peter yeah. part not made up as well? Well, this is a part of the trick when you're reading these ancient sources to know when history ends and when legend begins. Uh -huh. And there's not always a specific objective scientific criteria that can be used because sources are written at different times. Right. They rely upon different sources. They're written to different audiences, have different theological approaches. So this is where it gets a little bit sticky, and you have to take each source as it is and try to assess it on its own merit and ask, do we have a reason to trust the source? So take, for example, the one that is legend-filled would be the Acts of Peter. And this is written kind of these books, Acts of Peter, Acts of Paul, Acts of Thomas. These are books written after probably the middle of the second century. And people start telling these romantic tales of what they imagine happened to the apostles. Uh, clearly, they're filled with legend. In the Acts of John, all these bedbugs come outside of his room and he commands the bedbugs to disappear. In the Acts of Peter, Simon Magus, who's in Acts as somebody who tried to steal their power, or use their power for his own good, is like flying through the air. So it's filled with legend. But one of the things that I found is these various books, Acts of Peter, Acts of Paul, Acts of Thomas, 
are based upon a known historical core that can be corroborated elsewhere. So these people are telling certain romantic tales, but they're tied to certain characters and certain events and certain places that can be corroborated elsewhere. So if my whole case was rested upon the Acts of Peter and there were no external sources for it, I would have to admit that we really don't know what happened to Peter. But if we have a bunch of sources telling the same thing, and then you find the Acts of Peter that also indicates died in Nero in this place and this time that's externally corroborated, that minimally tells us that the tradition was known in that time in that place. And although they, although they invent these flowery tales, they knew they had to tie these flowery tales to a known historical core. And also to make that point a little more plain, Sean, you know, I would I would think about this TV show that I was watching about a month ago. And obviously it's a TV show. It's not based on a true story. So it's a lot of characters who don't really exist doing jobs, you know, that they don't really do. It's all made up. A room full of writers created this. Now, in their conversation, in this episode that I was watching, they made a reference to President, uh, for our former President Barack Obama and our current President Donald Trump. They made a reference okay. to each of them. Yep. Now, in order for people who will watch that TV show to be interested for that, for this type of show, because it's not like a Marvel or comic book show and and even some of them still have it grounded in truth really you know some of the comic books they're still grounded in truth but my point in bringing this up is they use that although they made up a story that is captivating and entertaining but it is grounded in truth which is why they mentioned donald trump and barack obama so if someone happens to come across a dvd a thousand years from now you know and they might see oh uh character amy isn't a real person because this is made up but she referred to donald trump and barack obama as two presidents of the u.s you know maybe there are countless other evidences that support that those two men were once president of the united states so you'll be able to look at that a thousand years from now and go well it looks like all of this stuff is romanticized in this tv show but they reference donald trump barack obama being presidents of the united states and we have other evidence elsewhere that says that those two men were presidents of the united states yeah i think that's a fair comparison now if all we had was that television show and no other external evidence we right. might say, okay, maybe Obama and Trump, maybe these guys existed as presidents, but we couldn't ground it in much confidence. Right. But right. we have additional evidence, and so this just tells us something about the nature of the show, what they're trying to accomplish, and I think the same thing is similar with the Acts of Peter. My case is not built on these legend-filled documents, but they add circumstantial evidence to the consistency and nature of an even much earlier tradition. Well, well, with that said, let's move on to Paul. Now, first of all, before we even get to the tradition of him being beheaded in Rome, why is Paul even included in this if he didn't walk and hang out with Jesus like many of the other ones? So when I started examining the apostles, I had to decide how far I was going to take this. Was it just going to be the 12? Right. Was it going to include Paul, uh, who wasn't one of the 12? James, the brother of Jesus, wasn't one of the 12. Uh, what about Mark? What about Luke? What, like, at some point I thought, you know what? I've got to do the 12 because they're the 12 Jesus established. Paul and James are such pivotal figures in the early church. And we have good early evidence about their journeys and their beliefs and their fate 
So it's significant enough to include them. The bottom line reason I included Paul and James is that the early testimony is that both of them had an appearance of the risen Jesus. First mm -hmm. Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how he saw the risen Jesus and how James had an appearance of the risen Jesus. So I included them for two reasons. Number one, they had an appearance. Number two, they're so prominent in the early church. There was enough evidence there to investigate when it comes to like, say, Mark, these traditions are much later and hard to put a lot of stock in them being historical. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Now about him being beheaded in Rome, I feel like that's a tradition. What evidence or things that we have for Paul? I do know that some of the things that mentioned Peter's death also mentioned Paul. So, so how would you elaborate on that? So that's right. When it comes to the first century, we have one source for Paul, which is also first, first Clement, Clement chapter five, both mm -hmm. Paul and Peter are mentioned running the race to the point of endurance. And it's in a larger context of those who lay down their lives and or are killed because of jealousy. So I think the context makes it clear that both Peter and Paul die as martyrs. And Bart Ehrman agrees with that, by the way. When it comes to Peter, when you, I'm sorry, when it comes to Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 3 has this famous line where Peter, Pete, again, Paul, sorry, where Paul says, I fought the good fight. I yeah, finished, finished the, the race. Famously in chapter 3. And he says, you know, he, he mentions that his life is about to be poured out like a libation. In other words, the context is he has been the apostle of suffering and he knows his suffering is coming to an end because his life is being taken from him. Either Paul wrote Second Timothy, knowing his imminent death is near, taken from him, or some of the scholars are right that Paul didn't write Second Timothy, just as they would say about Second Peter. And the tradition was so strong at that time that they had to insert this on the lips of Paul because it was known that he died in a certain fashion. So either way, it gives credence to it. Now you move into the second century and there's eight sources for Paul of varying strength that are unanimous, they're consistent, and they're early that Paul in fact died as a martyr. Now the beheading doesn't really show up. As far as I can recall, I think it's the Acts of Paul towards the end of the second century where it distinctly describes him being beheaded. Now that's in a book like the Acts of Peter that's filled with some legend. It's hard to know for sure if it's historical or if that component was added in. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I do know what's a couple of things that are interesting. Number one, Paul was a Roman citizen, so he would not have been crucified. We know that John the Baptist was beheaded. We know in uh, James chapter two, James, I'm sorry, Acts chapter two, James' son of Zebedee beheaded. So that was a very common way for somebody to be executed. Now, what's fascinating in the Acts of Paul, it describes how when Paul is uh, beheaded, this white milky type substance squirts out of his neck. Well, when I wrote the fate of the apostles, I took the position most scholars take. I said, it's probably some kind of theological point about his death being sustenance like milk, caring for those who come after. And then a doctor who's a student of mine in the MA apologetics at, at Biola, where I teach, he emailed me, he goes, hey, I read your book. And he sent me this link. He said, there is this medical condition 
where people actually can secrete a milk-type substance from the neck. Now, that doesn't prove that's what Paul experienced, but it made me pause and go, huh, maybe there is a little bit of historicity to this yeah. account. So whether or not Paul was beheaded, again, the early consistent unanimous account was that Paul suffered <coughs> immensely and that he died as a martyr in Rome. And we know he got to Rome, just read the end of the book of Acts. Now, we won't have time to go into great detail with each with each chapter that you have in your book. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you're looking at this on YouTube, this is the cover. If you're listening to one of our platforms, you certainly want to get the book, The Fate of the Apostles. It is so much information. Like we could literally spend 60 minutes a piece, probably more on literally each chapter. Literally, it, it's, it's, an, it's an incredible work, uh, excellent work, Sean. I can only imagine how long it took you to write it because for me to read it responsibly, it takes me a long time. And you was the one who wrote it. So, <laughs> so I know it had to take you a while. But, but I do want to talk a little bit about the ones, the, the apostles who, who historically we can make a stronger case for. Would you say Peter and Paul? are two of the apostles who history supports uh, dying a gruesome death more strongly? So if you take the 12 apostles with Matthias replacing Judas, and then we have Paul and James, the son, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, uh -huh. that's 14. Out of that 14, I think we have both James and Paul, non-members of the 12, who we have consistent early evidence they died as martyrs. Of the 12, I think we have Peter and James, the son of Zebedee, that we have very solid early evidence they died as martyrs. There's two others that I think we have a good case, a decent case. That would be Andrew and that would be Thomas. The rest, the eight rest of the apostles, I think it's genuinely hard to know where history ends and where legend begins. I mean, poor Barth Bartholomew, I was able to find traditions that he was skinned alive, burned alive, crucified, drowned, killed in a range of different ways. So either he had a really bad day <laughs> or, and some of these traditions were invented. And you do see some of these early churches, if they could have a story of an apostle founding their church, there was a certain authority that came with that. So it's not that there was deception, but there was a, a willingness to believe certain stories that had been passed on that I think probably couldn't be corroborated as well as they could be. So bottom line, I think there's four we know with a high degree of confidence, two that are probable, and the rest of them, it's really hard to know. But what matters, Veda, is we know just reading the early book of Acts, which I think, even if you don't think it's inspired, can be shown to be a very reliable historical document. That the apostles said they saw the risen Jesus, they publicly proclaim this risen Jesus, they're threatened, beaten thrown in prison and they refuse to back down because they say we can't stop proclaiming what we have seen so whether we can show they all died as martyrs we know they all believed it and they intentionally put themselves in harm's way for a message that jesus had risen from the grave that tells me they're not inventing this story so I would like to just do a quick run through as we're uh, coming up on time soon uh, about some of the apostles that we didn't talk about already. But before we do that, I would like to get your opinion on some of uh, Candida Moss's presentations and books. And the reason I ask about her is, uh, and again, please feel free to correct me if I say anything wrong, but 
as far as being a scholar who has who has work that is opposite of the evidence that you're presenting or the point that that you're presenting you know she might be the more most scholarly one or the or the person who does it the loudest so if you could summarize where you think she might be mistaken or missing some things in in history what would you say what would you say is the case as far as as far as her work probably the most well-known critique of the argument I'm making here, although she wrote the book before I wrote mine, yeah. is in her book called The Myth of Persecution. And Candida Moss is a very gifted, smart scholar. She's written a number of books, one mm-hmm. called Ancient Christian Martyrdom, uh, that helped me in my research. But this book, The Myth of Persecution, was a much more popular critique making the claim that Christians have this huge persecution complex that affects their political interaction and views today, they can go back to the first century. But if we look at it, persecution was not as widespread, did not happen. And she gives, I can't remember the number, I think maybe six Christians we can only establish actually died as, uh, were persecuted in any sense in the early first part of, of the church. Now, one thing that's helpful about her book, <clears throat> I think there is a sense when Christians look back we read more persecution into the first century than might have happened. Mm-hmm. Really, persecution tended to be sporadic, localized, but there wasn't in the first century this nonstop, let's find every single Christian and crucify him and persecute him. That's not what happened as a whole. And I think her book is a correction to that, but I think she takes it too far and undermines some of the early evidence that we have that in fact the apostles died as martyrs and some of the early Christians were persecuted. So, yeah, so my my critique is I think she brings a certain agenda to her work and reads it into the evidence and just has actually not interacted with some of my critique of her work since and has chosen not to engage me in any fashion. I think she sees me as an apologist and a polemicist which ironically, I am an apologist. <laughs> he is too for a similar point. We've both mm. done our research, both did scholarship, advance an argument. So let's talk about it. Sure. I wish we could have that conversation, but she's just chosen not to, I think for different reasons that are, that are unfortunate. But she's a, she's a great scholar. She's very gifted and smart. I think just misstates some of the arguments and some of that is because some Christians have misstated the argument and she's responding to bad ways the argument has been put forward, but there's better ways to put this argument forward that I, I would love to know what she thinks. Yeah, and actually part of the reason why I wanted to make sure we included some of her work in this interview is to demonstrate to those listening that, hey, the, the intention, obviously these are two to say, hey, these guys are biased. They came in with bias, but it's like, no. The And every human has some bias, but we can do our diligent research. So I, I actually just wanted to be responsible in mentioning a popular work that has a different goal intended in speaking about some of this evidence and mentioning her. And again, I think that you, Sean, in, in, in this book, I think you do a very responsible job of clarifying and qualifying everything that you are that you are presenting uh so with that said well, do you have another comment before we move on oh no i appreciate that i'll give you an example where her and i differ and your audience can make up their minds 
when it comes to early Christians being persecuted, uh, Pliny the Elder wrote a book, Pliny the Younger, in the early second century in a letter to Trajan about what should we do with these Christians that keep saying Jesus is God? What do we do with them? And her take is the fact that a letter is being written to the Emperor Trajan shows that there is no policy and this persecution is new. Well, I looked at it and I go, wait a second. We have letters being written today. What do we do with issues like immigration? There are policies, and it's on the books, or marijuana possession, but we still debate. Are we going to actually follow the policies, and which laws are we going to implement? So the mere fact that there was debate, a letter written, doesn't show that Christians weren't being persecuted at this time. It, easily to explain it is, do we actually carry this out? What do you actually want me to do in this scenario? So I think that's just as plausible of a way to interpret that as the way that she does. That's it. But thanks for including it. Um, and, it and for those who want to read both sides, get the fate of the apostles, get the myth of persecution, read them side by side, and make up your mind of where you think the evidence points. Amen. Amen. So let, let's just do a, I only have you for a few more minutes. Let's, I just like to hear your knee jerk thoughts based on your research. When I throw out some of these names, uh, James brother of Jesus, uh, is, is this the James that, that tradition shows that he was stoned to death? Uh, yes, this James was, uh, the brother of Jesus. We know he had an appearance of Jesus. First Corinthians 15 written by Paul becomes the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And what's fascinating about him is we actually have an account of his death in Josephus, who is a Jewish scholar writing to the Roman Empire the end of the first century. And then you get into the second century, and there's Christian sources with James, but also Gnostic sources. So for James, there's Jewish, Gnostic, and Christian sources that all point to a broadly similar fate that he experienced in Jerusalem, which tells me we are in good ground concluding that he in fact was put to death for religious and political reasons like Jesus. Now, for those listening, you cannot use James as a person to, as a, as evidence to say, hey, we should not allow weed because someone actually did die from weed. Cause that's awesome what people say. Well, we didn't ever kill nobody and we didn't kill James either. So when they say he was stoned to death, that's not what they are referring to. Amen. All right. So John, the son of Zebedee, what are some thoughts that come to mind when you hear that? This is one of the most interesting apostles to study because there are leading Christian scholars, people like Ben Witherington and Richard Bauckham who argue that he actually died early as a martyr and that the John that wrote, say, Revelation and other books was either a group of people that carried on the traditions of John or this entirely different character named John the Elder. I'm not persuaded by their arguments, but I went into this assuming John died a natural death and it gave me enough pause to go, huh, that's interesting because you see in kind of the end of the third, the fourth, and fifth centuries, you see traditions start to appear of James and John dying as martyrs together. But I think the early evidence is much weaker, and I'm not convinced by it. Okay. I think he probably died a natural death. In fact, my book was to show that, or to assess the evidence whether they died as martyrs. So if I could argue that John died as a martyr, it would only make my case stronger, 
but I just wasn't convinced by the early evidence for it. Okay, so let's talk about Thomas a little bit. I know tradition says that he was killed with spears in India. What are some thoughts that come to you about Thomas? Thomas was absolutely fascinating because the history was done by Eastern scholars who tend to approach it a little differently than Western scholars. And I think anyone who's looking at this historically would have to say the evidence is later. So there's this book called The Acts of Thomas, probably around the turn of the second to early third century, that is filled with some legend. But like Acts of Peter, Acts of Paul, Acts of John, seems to have this historical core of him going to India and ultimately dying as a martyr. There's also this early, these people that live in India right now, St. Thomas Christians, who tell these traditions of going back to the time of Thomas. So scholars differ over whether these are independent or dependent upon one another. If they're independent and we have two lines of evidence, that would be enough to convince me, man, this probably did happen, but I'm not sure we could fully establish that. So given that Thomas was a moderately prominent apostle, we have evidence of Christianity in the second century. We have a moderately early tradition, and I couldn't find any other tradition of Thomas going anywhere or dying any other fashion. I think you could say it's at least plausible, maybe more probable than not, that this tradition took place. Okay. But it's weaker than, say, Peter and Paul. All right. So I'm going to ask you to do your best Bobby Conway impression with no. Andrew. <laughs> oh, you know, it's funny. Bobby and I are so similar in some ways. I don't even have to try to, you know, copy him. People are like, dude, you sound and look like Bobby. So <laughs> be myself and that will kind of do it. We even have a similar backpack. Same exact. Right. <laughs> right. I'm like, this is weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, well, all right. Well, we're right at a uh, sixty seconds. So, listen, we did not get a chance to walk through each of the apostles that are covered in the book. If you are interested in more, I strongly encourage you to invest in the book, The Fate of the Apostles. I say invest because it is an investment, and you will certainly see spiritual and knowledgeable dividends based on that it's an excellent book the people who we did cover and so much more is covered in the book and also the apostles who we did not get a chance to cover so dr sean mcdowell i want to thank you so much for your time and as we always say as we close out is he a real one yes he is and the he that we are talking about is jesus y'all a a amen Hey, this is Greg Kokel, author of Tactics, a Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions and the Story of Reality, How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. And you're listening to Is He a Real One?